I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church this morning. We're glad you've chosen to worship with us, especially on Easter morning. One thing I really like about Easter is that uh, at churches, a lot of times, people who you haven't seen in a while get to come, whether it's people who were away at school, whether it's people who live in other parts of the country who are in town to see family. It's always good to see new faces and old faces that we haven't seen in a while on Easter. So we're glad that you've chosen to worship here with us. You know, the past week has been kind of a somber week, at least on the Christian calendar. You know, Palm Sunday celebrates the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, knowing that he was facing his impending death. Maundy Thursday celebrates the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples in the upper room when Judas went the full way to betray Jesus. And then Good Friday, of course, really might not be all that good when you think about it and just look at it on the surface. Our Savior was taken to a cross. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was rejected. That's hard. That's something that we mourn. However, Easter is different because we know that the story didn't end at that cross. That's why Easter is not a day of somber reflection. Easter is not a day of grief. It's not a day of mourning. Easter is a day of celebration. And we're glad that you've chosen to do that here with us this morning. Now, I was at Barnes & Noble a while back, and I came across this book. And this book is called History's Worst Decisions and the People Who Made Them. And I saw it and I thought, you know what, this seems like it could be kind of interesting. There might be some good sermon material in here. This book was only $10.98. It was a great deal. There's all kinds of pretty colorful pictures in there. Really interesting stuff. But there's 50 examples of decisions that have been made throughout history that were just horrible decisions. Just terrible ideas. 50 examples, but I wanted to pick out three of them to share with you this morning. The first one was Nero's burning of Rome in 64 AD. The Roman Emperor Nero, legend has it, wanted more room for his brand new palace. So the best thing he could think of to get rid of the buildings that were in the way of where he wanted to put his new palace was burn them to the ground. So legend has it that Nero hired some of his own men to burn part of the city to the ground, make it look like an accident, and conveniently open up some prime real estate for his new palace. But here's the problem. The fire got a little bit bigger than Nero thought it was going to get. It's estimated that two-thirds of the city was burned to the ground. Of course, this blew up in Nero's face, and so Nero's natural response was, well, I need to find somebody else to blame. So he blamed the Christians. But not a lot of people bought into it. A lot of people knew Nero. They knew how narcissistic he was. They knew how arrogant he was. And so they saw right through this excuse. In fact, some people even heard rumors that as the city was burning, Nero was standing on his balcony, singing and playing the lyre, watching the fire burn. Nero's power never recovered from this massive blunder. He was assassinated by a group of men, and his last words were recorded to have been, What an artist the world is losing in me. Nero lost his power, but he definitely still had his humility. Now, another example, Napoleon's invasion of Russia. 
That went from around 1812 to 1816. Napoleon gathered 680,000 of his own troops, and they marched into Russia, but over 60,000 of them died before a single shot was fired. They died of hunger. They died of disease. And so Napoleon's men stumbled into this small town called Vitebsk. And the thought was that they would stay in Vitebsk and that they would rest, they would wait for reinforcements, they would try to regain some of their energy, try to regain some of their momentum. And that may have worked, but for some strange reason, Nero decided that they would only stay in Vitebsk for 15 days. Not nearly enough time to get reinforcements, not nearly enough time to recharge. Nero paid, sorry, not Nero, Napoleon paid deeply for this mistake Because by the time he returned home from this failed military campaign, only 10,000 men were left of 680,000 that left originally. And then finally, the last example I want to share with you is particularly relevant with some of the stuff that has been happening this past week. On April 15, 1912, the Titanic sank. Now, J. Bruce Ismay was the president of White Star Line the main line that funded the building of the Titanic. Now, there were 2,210 people on board the Titanic, but there were only 20 lifeboats. And those 20 lifeboats only had a capacity of 1,178 people. So even when the Titanic hit the iceberg, even if every single person had been in a lifeboat, if they were all filled to capacity, over 1,000 people still would have been left on a sinking ship with nowhere to go. 1,503 people died. And it soon became clear that the reason there were not more lifeboats is that J. Bruce Ismay thought that putting more lifeboats on the ship would take up room. It would make the ship a little bit less comfortable. It would make it a little bit hard to market. And maybe it would hurt their bottom line because they couldn't fit as many passengers. J. Bruce Ismay went down as one of the most selfish villains in all of history. A town in Texas called Ismay changed its name when this happened. That's how angry people were. And as I read about these stories, all of these stories in this book, but even these three in particular, I came across the question, I found myself asking, what if these things had never happened? What if they had happened differently? If Nero had made a better decision about where to build his palace, could that have changed the fate of not only his reign, but maybe even the fate of the Roman Empire in its entirety? What if Napoleon had made a better decision about invading Russia? Would he have gone down as one of the greatest leaders in all of Europe instead of just being a potentially great leader? What if J. Bruce Ismay had just sucked it up and put more lifeboats on the Titanic? Would fewer people have died? Would it have had a huge impact on that tragedy? And as I found myself asking this question of what if these things had never happened, I asked that question about the resurrection. What if the resurrection had never happened? I know that's a different angle than what you might think about, typically. That's a different angle than what most Easter sermons may be preached on, but humor me for a second. We're going to look at that today. What if the resurrection had never happened? So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Romans chapter 4. We have Bibles scattered throughout the room if you would like to use one of those underneath our chairs. If you don't own a Bible, grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. Take that with you. That is free to you as a gift from us. 
So Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Jump forward to verse 20. No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, in the book of Romans, Paul hits on this big theme of grace versus the law. And he shows that God plays the leading role in salvation. That God's grace is the reason for salvation. That's how salvation can even be discussed. Apart from God's grace, there's no point in even talking about it. But he also hits on this theme, in this passage especially, of Abraham. Abraham, back in Genesis 12, was a guy minding his own business, going on about his life, doing his everyday thing, and all of a sudden, by God's grace, he is called to believe in a promise. And the promise is that all the world will be blessed through Abraham and his offspring, that he'll be the father of a great nation who he can't even count how many people it would be. And throughout his entire life, throughout his process of following God, of believing in this promise, Abraham shows incredible faith. Even though he and his wife are both old, God says, Abraham, you're going to have a child. He's as good as dead, is the way Paul puts it. And yet Abraham believes that, you know what, if God says we're going to have a child, if God says we're going to have offspring, then we will have offspring. And sure enough, they do. They have that baby. God comes through on his promise. And Abraham is counted as righteous, not because he followed the law. The law hadn't even been given yet. The law hadn't even been put together yet. But Abraham is counted as righteous because he has faith in God's promise. He has faith that God will come through even when things seem to say otherwise. That's what counts him as righteous. His faith by God's grace. But then Paul takes this story of Abraham and he ties it up to Jesus. He says that really, when you think about it, this whole thing with Jesus, this whole cross, this whole empty tomb, all that stuff. This all goes back to Abraham. This isn't just some random new story. This is the continuation of a story that started long, long ago. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. And because of Jesus, because of his death, because of his resurrection, you and I, we can be counted as righteous, even though we cannot fulfill the law perfectly. You know, this all sounds great, but here's the thing. What if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? What if the resurrection never happened? Well, what it says about God is this. God's a really lousy planner. 
if the resurrection didn't happen. Because this whole plan to fulfill the promise to Abraham, this whole plan to reconcile people to himself, this whole plan to rescue people from the effects of sin, to rescue creation from the punishment of sin, all that plan finds its climax in Jesus. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then that entire plan is just one massive dud. It's that simple. God put all of his eggs in the Jesus resurrection basket to fulfill this promise, and Jesus didn't come through. So God must be a really terrible planner. All that stuff after Genesis 12, the rest of the Old Testament, Jesus' life, Jesus' death, all pointless because the plan didn't work. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then God is a lousy planner. But what would it say about Jesus if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? God's a lousy planner, but what about Jesus himself? Jesus certainly isn't going to get off scot-free if he didn't actually rise from the dead, right? Well, no, he's not. C.S. Lewis once famously quipped that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he's either a liar or a lunatic. One of those two. Now, some scholars today have added one farther L, and they've said that if he didn't rise from the dead, Jesus was probably just a legend. Now, Jesus would be a liar in the simple sense that what he said didn't come true. Look at Mark chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. We read in that passage, Jesus speaking to his disciples, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Well, Jesus said that he would rise from the dead, but you know, we all say crazy things sometimes. Sometimes we make promises that we can't really keep. Maybe we'll let that slide. The one time that Jesus said it would happen, and it didn't. But look at chapter 9, verse 30, just one chapter later. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Okay, now Jesus said it twice. You can't just say something's going to happen twice and then not come through and get away with it. But then look at chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. We read in that passage, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him. And flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Three strikes, you're out. Jesus said three different times that he would rise from the dead. So if he didn't rise from the dead, then C.S. Lewis is right. See, Jesus might just be a liar. But here's the thing. Maybe you want to give Jesus some benefit of the doubt. And you say, you know what, that's a pretty big claim to make. And clearly someone who would make that kind of claim, who didn't know for sure that it was going to happen, maybe he was just a little bit crazy. I mean, you can't blame someone who's crazy for thinking crazy things. Jesus may have really believed that he would rise from the dead. And if he didn't, well, he's not a liar. He's just a little bit of a lunatic. That's a pretty bold claim to make. Maybe he had some chemical imbalances. Maybe he had some mental issues. 
Maybe he had some traumatic experience as a child that caused him to believe some ridiculous things about himself. Maybe you give Jesus the benefit of the doubt. You say he's a lunatic if he didn't rise from the dead. But then maybe Jesus is nothing but legend. Maybe when Jesus was killed, the disciples just couldn't handle the stress of someone that they loved so deeply, someone that they followed so closely for those years. They just couldn't handle the grief of seeing that person die. So they had these grief-driven hallucinations. They were in denial that Jesus was actually gone, and so they convinced themselves that somehow, miraculously, Jesus was actually alive. And they went around telling people that. Maybe they knew that Jesus really wasn't alive, but they wanted to save face. They didn't want to have to return home to mom and dad and say, hey, uh, mom and dad, that guy that I started following, the one that you said was crazy, well, I believed him and you were right. He didn't rise from the dead. I'm embarrassed. Maybe they just wanted to save face and not be embarrassed by that. So they made it up. They took the body. They did something with it. They hid it and then started telling people that Jesus was alive, fully knowing he really wasn't. No matter whether you think Jesus is a liar, whether you think he's a lunatic, whether you think he's just some overhyped, made-up legend, we can all agree on this. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, it tells us that he is not the Messiah that his followers thought he was. He was just another good preacher with a charismatic message who maybe preyed on some naive people, some people who were a little bit vulnerable, and convinced them to follow him. The image of Jesus is not good if he didn't rise from the dead. But finally, not just does this say something about God, that he's a lousy planner, it would also say that Jesus is a liar, a lunatic, or a legend, and a failed Messiah, but what would it say about us if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? For that, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 12. Paul writes, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul makes it clear. If Christ did not rise from the dead, preaching is pointless. Sermons are meaningless. Faith has no real value. What's even worse is that Christians who made the claim that Jesus rose from the dead, well, those people are lying about God. It's not really a good state of affairs to find yourself in. But maybe even worse, Paul says that if Christ did not rise from the dead, you're still in your sins. Forgiveness, really not available to you. Mercy, not really an option. 
Our best bet, if we are still in our sins, if Christ did not rise from the dead, is maybe try and gather a bunch of animals and make a lot of sacrifices to try and somehow atone for the sins that we committed all along, thinking that we were good, thinking that we were covered, thinking that Jesus paid it all, when really, he was just another failed preacher. You know, those people who trained us in the faith, those people who prayed for us, those people who discipled us, who have passed on, they're hopeless too. If Christ isn't raised, then where are they going to go? They've perished. If Christ has not been raised, the best we have is a fool's hope in this life and absolutely no real hope in eternal life. Paul makes it clear. Christianity rises and falls on the resurrection of Christ. If the resurrection of Christ did not occur, then Christianity has no leg to stand on. Biblical scholar Gordon Fee wrote the following about Christ's resurrection. He writes, To deny Christ's resurrection is tantamount to a denial of Christian existence altogether. Yet many do so to make the faith more palatable to modern man, we are told. But that will scarcely do. What modern man accepts in its place is no longer the Christian faith, which predicates divine forgiveness through Christ's death on his resurrection. Nothing else is the Christian faith. If the resurrection didn't happen, Christianity is meaningless. Preaching, pointless. Faith, of no value. Life after death, eh, not really an option. But here's the thing. And here's what we celebrate on Easter. The resurrection did happen. Jesus is risen. The tomb is empty. Sins have been paid for on the cross. Christ is reigning and Christ is ruling at this very moment. And let me tell you, that changes everything.
know, that video is not just meant to welcome you to a service. That video is not just meant to welcome you to our building, as glad as we are that you're here. We'd like to welcome you to a time to leave a different person than you were when you came in. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. My prayer is that this morning, that you would not leave here the same as you were when you got here. The resurrection changes everything. It changes everything for those who know Christ. It changes everything for those who don't know Christ. If the resurrection happened, it is the single most important moment in all of history. Those who are broken can find wholeness in Christ. Those who are lost, they can find a home at the foot of the cross. Jesus is not a liar. Jesus is not a lunatic. Jesus is not just some made-up legend by some traumatized followers. He's Lord. God is not a lousy planner. God knew exactly what he was doing when Jesus was hanging on a cross for me and for you. And you and I, we don't have to be hopeless. Our preaching is not in vain. Our faith is not in vain. Those who have passed on before us who knew Christ, they did not die in vain. They are in God's presence at this moment. And we celebrate that. And we are humbled by that. And it is an incredible privilege that we are given the opportunity to place our faith in that. We proclaim that Jesus is alive. We proclaim that we are no longer stuck in sin because we can find forgiveness. We can find grace. We can find mercy. And it's at a blood-covered cross and a stone that was rolled away. That's what we celebrate on Easter. You don't have to live a life of loneliness. You don't have to live a life of guilt, of despair. You don't have to live a life of trying to prove yourself to God. You can live a life seasoned with grace. The grace that God shows us through Jesus. You don't have to live a life of rebellion and sin anymore. My prayer is this. If you're a Christian, don't allow yourself to get caught up in the routine of faith that we all do. The ins, the outs, the everyday, the mundane, the rote. It doesn't have to be that way. I pray that Easter will not just be the one day of the year where the resurrection truly means something, where it's the one day of the year where you actually think a little bit deeply about what the empty tomb means. I pray that will be every single day. If you're a non-Christian, maybe you got dragged here by family. You got dragged here because the only way that you could get ham at Aunt Mildred's house is if you showed up to church on Sunday morning. But here's the thing. You don't have to leave not knowing Christ anymore. You don't have to leave still being a rebel, still being lonely, still feeling guilt, still having your own debt that has not been paid yet. 
Allow Christ to pay that debt for you. No matter who you are, no matter where you've come from, no matter what you're dealing with, Easter is for you. Place your faith in Christ. Repent of your sin. Trust in the cross. Trust in the empty tomb. As we close out our service, a few of our elders are going to be standing on the sides of the room. They'd be happy to talk with you. They'd be happy to pray with you. They'd be happy to answer any questions you have about what it means to be a follower of Christ. I pray that you'll take that opportunity. I pray that in these sacred moments, that you will accept the offer that Christ is extending to you. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. We're humbled. You've given us a privilege that we could never deserve. To no longer be enemies, but to be your children. God, thank you for the cross. Thank you that Jesus' body was broken, that his blood was shed for us. Thank you that he lived the life that we could never live and died the death that we should have died. But God, thank you that the story didn't end there. It didn't end with a loving, sacrificial death that really didn't mean a whole lot in the big scheme of things. It ended with a resurrection. And God, I pray that we will not leave here dead in our sin the way we were when we may have walked in. I pray that we will leave alive through your son's resurrection. I pray that those who don't know Christ will place their faith in him this morning. I pray that those who do know Christ will no longer allow their faith to be nothing more than going through the motions. God, I pray that your resurrection will change everything in our lives. What we say, what we do, how we live in its entirety. God, we talked about terrible decisions that people have made throughout history. But God, the best decision that any of us could make is to place our faith in your son, Jesus. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.